Well, this series is based off of the Lord's Prayer, which you just read, and so every week we're gonna stand up together and we're gonna pray it and read it out loud. So please join me as we pray the Lord's Prayer together. Read it with me as I read it on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Our Father, we come to you and we thank you for these words. We pray today that your name would be elevated in our hearts and minds and therefore uh, dominate our lives, who you are and what you have for us. We thank you for these words. We thank you for this prayer that means so much. And we pray that uh, we wouldn't just hear it and say it, but it would move us and shape us from this moment all throughout this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you didn't hear Hallowed Week 1, uh, you're going you're gonna to get a lot. You, you know, I can catch you up to speed in one message, um, but you might want to go back and check it out online, uh, on the app, whatever it is. You can listen to the podcast. And this is called Hallowed because when Jesus comes to earth 2,000 years ago and his disciples and the people of Israel ask him how to pray, that prayer we just read is what he tells them. And he says, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. And the idea there is that the people of Israel don't have God's name hallowed uh, or they don't have God's name where they should in their hearts and minds and lives. Hallowed means to elevate, it means to make great. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm here because my life and my teaching and my death and resurrection is going to be another movement of God to make my name, the name of God, great in your lives and you need that. And that, that's something that we all need. And the reason why this is called Hallowed, uh, the, the first exodus is because when Jesus says hallowed, what he's referring to is a time in the life of the church thousands of years before him, or the life of Israel, if you will, where the name of God, last week we talked about it, was not only unimportant, it was forgotten. And so the exodus story, the famous story that you and I know, whether you just know it kind of commercially or you heard a little bit about it growing up, you know that the people of Israel were in slavery for 400 years and then through some very miraculous movements of God, they were set free. And that story is the single most retold story in all the scriptures, and it is one of the stories that even today, when we associate greatness with God, it's because of how he parted the Red Sea and let his people go through and got them out of slavery and tyranny. And so when Jesus is on earth, he's saying, we need to pray that what happened back here in the first Exodus, that it happens again here, because his life and death on the cross now becomes a movement to continue the work of the Exodus. So the original Exodus story gets the people out of tyranny, gets them into the desert at first, and then into the promised land. But even in the promised land, in God's space and promised area that he had given them, they still bring in idols and false gods. And so they're kind of at exile even when they're in home. They're in exile at home because they're not following and loving God. They go into exile, literally, in, into Babylon, but then when they come back, they still don't follow God. So the whole Old Testament narrative is, well, God set his people free, literally, 
out of this out of this slavery, and then they get to go into their own land eventually, but there's still the same problem because the problem is in the hearts of men and, 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 and women. And, and the, the whole kind of narrative of Exodus ends up with the temple being made so that God and, and the Spirit of God and the people of God can be together. But then in the New Testament, when Jesus is done, the Spirit of God is in the hearts of men. Because in Exodus, you're circumcised, which is an outward sign, but it doesn't solve all the inward problems of sin and brokenness. So the cross is the Exodus that defeats sin and death. And when we embrace the gift of God, we're given salvation of our souls where we become born again, where now we have the Spirit of God who can actually transform the hearts of men and the lives that we live can start to look like the lives that God wanted uh, them to from the very beginning. And so you have Exodus part one, and then Jesus's life, death, and resurrection is Exodus two, and he's going, we need, a, we need, our, we need the name of God to be made hallowed again. We need the name of God to be made great. So when Jesus takes all of sin and death on him, and then it extinguishes itself on him. Like he takes all of our sin. He, He becomes it. And then he resurrects and defeats death Basically what that means is now if you attach yourself to Jesus, then you, you'll defeat sin and you'll defeat death. And so this, this like uh, third exodus, if you will, is the second coming of Christ. And so that's when heaven and earth come back together and the final movement after this, God sends the Holy Spirit. So we kind of have, uh, you know, dead bodies, but the spirit half, kind of half solved And then in this, resurrected bodies made in the image of God come out of the ground, heaven and earth come back together, and that's the plan. And so you really can't look at the whole narrative of Scripture through three exoduses. The first exodus, the life of Christ, the second exodus, and then the one to come is is the third exodus that's on the way. And so this whole point is that we as people forget who God is, We don't love God anymore. We don't think he's great. And so the book of Exodus, which in the Greek means the way out, the point of the book is God making his name great. God is going to, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the slavery, in the midst of the losing your way and direction, he's going to bring clarity. He's going to bring salvation. He's going to give you direction. He is going to do all of that in such a monumental way that when you step back and look at it and you see what God does with leading the people across the Red Sea while the Egyptians are chasing them down to kill them and bring them back into slavery, when you look at that story, you go, now that is great. Hallowed be the name of God, that he would do that. He did that great thing. And so the Exodus narrative is peppered with all kinds of greatness that he does. The story of the burning bush, the snake, the plagues, all of them just over and over again are showing us the greatness of the name of God and the goodness of God. And you can follow along. We're doing a Bible reading plan because we want you to have this narrative at least for four weeks. We're gonna get all the way through Exodus 14, which is kind of the first movement. And so if you're on the app, it will prompt you to read the next section of Scripture. This last week week we read Exodus 1 through 3, and uh, we're going to look at some of that today, but I'll have it on the screen 
if you didn't read it, but hopefully you read it. If you didn't, we'll help you through it today. But if you, if you did, then it's really going to help you kind of put a frame around what I'm talking about. When you think about the way out, you do start to think about the way that you're supposed to go. Like, which way do I go? How do I, how do I get the direction, you know? Which direction does God want me to go? And I don't know about you, but my wife and I, we're in a season of directions, constantly trying to figure out the way, right? Literally to, you know, all of our kids are, are doing sports and our two older boys are in two sports. And so every weekend there's a tournament or a football game and it's away and there's the app, Team Snap. Anybody got the Team Snap? Yep, parents, yep. You, and, it, it, you know, coaches put the address on there and we're just constantly going, do you know where that is? Did you get the directions? Do you know where that is, what that is? And there's something that I learned through this process that my wife does that I think is, is, is really bad. I think, she, I think I do it way better than she does. <laughs> like I think that her way of finding the way is the bad way. And what she does, and this is craziness, is she, so she has a, 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 a truck that has Apple CarPlay in it, right? You guys following me, right? This is standard operating stuff now, right? Standard, right? If you don't have that, oh, I feel really bad for you. It's not safe either. But Apple, Apple CarPlay, and uh, you know, if you don't know, you can get on Maps, even on Google, and it'll work on Apple CarPlay. But if you get on Apple Maps, and you go to the, you first go to the app, you click on the link, it will open in Apple Maps, then give directions from your location or your house to where you're going, and then when you get in your car, right, it comes up on the screen, you can hit the map and then say go, and follow the directions right on your screen through your phone. I know that you guys all know this, but like, I'm saying it for, for a point. My wife, what she does, knowing that all of that is capable of happening, what she does is she gets in the car, gets out her phone, uses her car's navigation system, hits a button, and then pulls up the keyboard, looks at her phone, types in the address on her, I know, this is, this is blasphemous. She, she types, she types it in, and then it comes up, and then she holds her phone like this while she's driving with the in-car navigation system. And I have said to her a hundred times, that is the dumbest way to do that. You know you're making, your way is not a good way, you should do it my way. That's what I told her. I didn't maybe say it that emphatically, but that's what was implied. My way is better than your way and you should listen. And then I learned, and this is not, not a, it's a joke, but it's not, not untrue, it's 100% true. I actually learned that even though my way was better, it's bad for me to tell her that my way is better because then my life falls apart. <laughs> and that is ultimately better. So her way is the better way. He's like, yeah, maybe you know better, but if you tell me the way you do it and make me do it your way, then I don't like you anymore. And I'm like, you know what? Your way is better. It's true. So I, I kind of learned. You know, we have this kind of reality. You, you know, you do this. We all do this, right? We look at people. I mean, dear Lord, save us all from people that don't understand the roundabouts. I mean... <laughs> I mean, do you not understand? You yield to go in. When you're in, you don't stop until you get out. That's the way it works. 
And like, and so, I mean, literally, I do judge people. Like, if I see someone that's in, like, like I am pulling up, right? I'm yielding. And someone is coming around, and they slow down. And they stop. And I'm like, you're stupid. Go. 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 Because then it's like, oh, we're going to go, and then we're going to T-bone. There is a way to do it and a way not to do it. And all of us judge people. We're like, you are, you are not a smart person. My way is better than your way. And that's funny when it comes to that. But it's true in so many ways. We, you know, we kind of like look at people. You might see something on social media. You might hear how someone responds to something. You look at something and go, that was such a bad way. The truth is, is that I do this, and I think you'll relate. I do this with God. You know, like hard, fast turn, but I do look at the way sometimes that God would have things play out or what's supposed to happen the day of or even honestly, like if I, if I start to unpack for you, like I have these, these inner monologue kind of things where I look at this story and I think, God, I don't like the way you did, did this. You know, and I'm, I'm like, why, you know, why do you do it this way? Like, you, you guys know there's 400 years before the Exodus. How many generations is that? Like, what, we're 200, 300 years old? Like, not even that old. Like, our whole country plus another 150 years or whatever, before the Exodus, they're all in slavery. I'm going, God, you, you know, you messed that up. Like, why'd you wait so long? I look at this often. It's like, can we get there? What, what is, we, we believe in the, the bodily resurrection, right? This is something that in church is so, such a challenge that a lot of people don't even believe in the resurrection anymore. Like, do you know that a lot of people, like, in the church that grew up, like, it's one of the, like, fundamental theologies in the Christian church that we believe not just in Jesus' resurrection, but the bodily resurrection of the, of the saints, of the followers, it's been so long, 2,000 years, that people have tried to come up with different ways for what it means when people die. Well, their spirit goes, and then it's just supposed to be that, and bodies don't matter anymore. And that's just, like, not true at all. The body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The whole purpose of the bodily resurrection of Christ is that it's your direction. But I got to tell you, I sit in this sometimes, and I'm like, why are you doing it that way? Come back, resurrect us. Paul talks about the resurrection. He's like... You know, here's what's gonna happen. Those that have fallen asleep, they'll be, you know, transform their spiritual bodies. And then those of us, after the resurrection, those of us that are alive will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. I'm like, God, um, can, we, can I get some twinkle? Like, come on. Like, let's go, you know? Like, let's get on with it. And I can look at God and look at his ways. And it's very easy to go, God, you're not good at your job. I don't like the way you're doing this. And this is, a, this is a classic problem that we can have, my way versus God's way. And I think that what we have to see in the Exodus story is that what God is gonna show you is that his way, and this is simple, but understanding it and moving into it is, is a game changer. God's way is always better than mine. God's way is always better than mine. Who could ask the creator of the world with the breath that he gave them to do his job better? Right, so you, 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 you may not like it. It may not feel good. It may not be what you think is good, but when you understand the Exodus story, there's a profound couple of moments in it that are designed to show you God's way always better. 
in your way. So we'll pick up with, with the classic example here. Moses is, is obviously an Israelite, and things have gotten so bad in Egypt, so bad that the Pharaoh uh, is, is, is starting to kind of get manicky, and there's tension between the Israelites and the Hebrews, and the Hebrews continue to increase in number. And so the king, he puts them in slavery, right? He's like, okay, we gotta, we gotta like control them, we gotta dominate them, we gotta use them to grow our economy. And they start to continue to grow in so many numbers that the king decides to kill all the firstborns. It's amazing, you should go read it. It's actually really a compelling story. There's so many like parenthetical beauties and blessings in the story. One of the parts of the story that I just love is when the babies are, are told by the king to be murdered, all the boys, the midwives of the Hebrews, they disobey the king. They don't do it, they don't kill the babies, right? And so then the king hears that the midwives aren't killing the baby boys when they're born. So the king brings the midwives or goes to them or some, some kind of interaction happens where he's like, why are you doing this? And the, and the midwives, the Hebrew midwives lie to, to Pharaoh. They lie. They say, oh, you know, we, we'll kill them, but the, the Hebrew women are too vigorous. They, they have the baby before we can get there to catch it. So they have their own baby and then they take it off and keep them. And it's a lie. Now, the Hebrew midwives that he talks to, their names are beauty and sparkle in the Hebrew because they're, they're actually showing you a picture of a sovereign level of the way God operates in the world because you and I might think, well, you're not supposed to lie. But what's happening in the story is nothing short of Auschwitz. It is World War II. It is Schindler's List. They are murdering Jewish children. And so the midwives become Schindler. They go, no, we're gonna lie. Is it wrong to lie? Yes. Is it wrong to lie when you're saving innocent children? No. If you need to, to save innocent people, you should. Because what happens is, is the midwives, they get blessed because of what they do. Isn't that a crazy story? You get into that kind of moral ambiguity space and wonder what really matters to God. Human life, it matters to God tremendously. I mean, it is, it blesses it, just pours out blessing on it. That's, an, that's a crazy story. So with Moses, Moses is born and his mom is scared that he's gonna get killed. So she puts him in the, uh, this basket that the wood and the way that it's designed, it, the words in it, the same words that are in that basket are used for the design of Noah's Ark. It's the same thing. And so then it goes through the water and it ends up on the back porch. They got some really sick like palace in Egypt where the water and the steps, like zero entry pool. Somehow this, this basket with Moses in it comes up and she pulls the daughter of Pharaoh, pulls the, the, the basket up and says, I'm gonna get, a, get someone to nurse this baby. And you know who she ends up getting? She goes and gets one of the wet nurses that are Hebrew and it just happens to be Moses' real mom. It's a great story of how you can't, can't outmaneuver God. Every single thing is showing you, look how great God is. Look how great he is. Look at his name. Look what he does. Look who he is. Look what he's up to. Look what he's trying to do. So then Moses grows up, and he knows he's a Hebrew, and one day he walks into the space where his Egyptian families are experiencing oppression, and he decides to do something because he wants to deliver them. And we learn from the way that the text is written that the way he goes about it is not the way he should. Let's read about this. This is uh, Exodus chapter two. It says this, one day after Moses had grown up, 
He went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Pay attention to this. Looking this way and that, or looking to the left and then to the right, and seeing that, uh, and that seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one that was in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? Look what ends up happening. The man said, who made you the ruler and judge of us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? You see what happened in the story? You can infer that probably the person that Jesus saved uh, from the Egyptians is now in a dispute, right? Because he knows about the, the death. Like these Egyptians were beating somebody. Moses rises up, kills the Egyptian. The guy that was the victim is standing there watching. Whoa, Moses just killed him, buried him in the sand. Next day, he's over here, hothead Harry, I don't know. He's in a fight with one of his brothers and Moses is like trying to do the thing of a deliverer. If I have to murder them, I'll murder him. And then now you guys stop fighting and they're like, oh, you're gonna do what you did yesterday? And so basically, the text tells us that what happened, it, it went viral. It went through the camp. And the king found out. So the king found out that Moses was trying to be a deliverer of the Hebrew people. It's like, dude, you live in my house. And you're going out there trying to stop. That's my work you're doing. So now he's in trouble with the state. <laughs> then Moses was afraid and thought, oh, no, what I did must have become known. You're right, it did. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh, went out to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. And this is the moment in the story where Moses has done things his own way, and he ends up in the desert. And of course, there's, there's connections to this of the great story of Joseph and Jacob in Genesis, where you know, the brothers sell their, their younger brother into slavery and he ends up in Egypt. That's how they all got there in the first place. And then he says those famous words, what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. Now Moses is out in the desert, but it's the beginning of the real restoration process and way that God's gonna lead the people out of slavery. But Moses is sitting in Midian at a well and he has this like, he has this like Taylor Swift moment. You know, he's like, it's me, Hi, I'm the problem, it's me. You know, he realizes I'm the problem. I did it my way, Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. I had, I've told you this before. I had a professor in, in school. He said that the most evil song ever written is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. Because to do it your way is to not do it God's way. And that's what Moses has happened. He has this moment where he goes, I'm the problem, it's me. I didn't do things God's way, and now here I am in the desert. I didn't deliver the people. Instead, it's honestly like the, the juxtaposition between what he wanted and what happened is astounding. Moses' way doesn't deliver him, it dispenses him. It just, it just, it expels him. It doesn't get him out of trouble, it gets him in to the desert. So what happens in, in the way this is written is so incredible. And if you read fast or you don't settle into it, you miss it. But what ends up happening is God engages Moses through the burning bush. He shows him his power. He shows him how he's gonna help communicate. They use these amazing plagues, God does, to show Pharaoh 
that he is the God of creation. I'm gonna talk about it one of these weeks. And he does something specific to creation to show that he is the God of creation because Pharaoh thinks that he is God. So he shows him that he's not God. And then eventually Pharaoh gets fed up and he's losing the battle and he's actually in a, in a state of complete mourning and, and dejection because his son dies and the, 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 you know, the firstborn of Egypt are now dying and he just loses it. He lets the people go and then he lets them all go and then he has a moment where he wakes up and goes, I just got rid of all my workforce and my economy. So the Israelite people are making their way down to the Red Sea and God leads them that way, and it's another example of looking at the story going, doesn't feel like God knows what he's doing. Why would you lead him down to the Red Sea where there's this big, mile-long, you know, I think it's five miles, maybe longer, the Red Sea. I mean, how in the world are we, what are we gonna do here? And then the Egyptians come up behind them, and this is what happens. God delivers them out of oppression, doing it his way. It says this in Exodus 14. It says this, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground. Watch this, with a wall of water, where? On their right and on their left. This is the author of this text going, when Moses saw a problem, he looked at it, and he looked to the left, and he looked to the right, and he moved forward and did it his way. And now, Moses is being shown, when you do things God's way, you look to the left, and you look to the right, and you see the marvelous hand of God in a moment in which not just Moses' heart of a deliverer comes to fruition, but the greatness of the name of God is happening in real time. A wall of water to the right, a wall of water to the left. Moses wanted to do it his way, God shows him his way, God's way. This is the picture of the whole story. Moses' name means to draw out. But the, the, the idea is you can't draw yourself out. You know, the daughter of Pharaoh drew him out of the water. God draws him out of the Red Sea and the whole nation of Israel. You go and try to fight and do things your way, you can't draw yourself out. You can't save yourself. You can't fix it. You can't do things your way. You have to figure out God's way. And when you figure out God's way, you do things the best they could ever be. And so all of us have to go through this process of going, okay, God's way out was not and is not the way I would ever come with, up with on my own, but God's way is always the way. God's way is always the best way. God's way is always the way that he brings glory to himself and the best way for you to live your life. You, you, you look at the story and you start to compare Moses' way and God's way. And Moses goes, I had an idea. I looked to the left, I looked to the right, no one was there. I murdered the guy. Then the next day I come in, I tried to break up a fight. He's thinking, I'm working hard. I did it my way. And it, it seemed good. And through the story, it's showing you, no. Look at this. 
Imagine standing there. It says he holds up his staff and the whole nation is walking through. Not just like, you know, in this kind of muck and mire, dry ground. The nation is, the picture is that like God created a freeway for the people. Imagine Moses going, oh man, my way was nothing. This is way better. This is way better. God's way is way better. I almost named this series Yahweh Out. Because he shows them his name and then he gives them their way out and his name is made great through his way out. No person would ever, ever come up with that being the way. You would never think of going through a Red Sea. You'd never think of going through on dry ground. You'd never think of not only you being delivered and drawn out of the water, but your enemy being defeated on the very spot that you were freed with. You sit back and go, God is great. Hallowed be his name. That's what I do with this story right now. Look, the second coming. I'm going, God, come on. Where's the resurrection? Come on. God, you're not doing your job right. Your way is not a good way. I don't like your way. You know, there's turmoil, there's wars, there's whatever. Resurrect, come back, bring your kingdom now, God. Don't wait anymore. You know what the second coming of of Christ is? The Bible teaches us that we don't understand God. It, It teaches us that his ways are not our ways. We would never do it that way. The Bible teaches us that with God, a day is like a thousand years. So it's been 2,000 years to God, who's outside of time, it's like two minutes. What is it all going to mean? It's going to mean that those who fall in love with God, their bodies are gloriously resurrected. The kingdom of God comes down to earth. Heaven and earth come back together in the original scenario where humans reflect the image of God. And they don't have to do that for 2,000 years. They get to do that for 200,000 years before they blink first. All of the pain, all of the problems, all of your sorrow, all of your suffering, all of it gone away because God will do it his way. That, I think, I think when God returns, we're gonna be like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah. This was better than what I, I, I couldn't have come up with this, God. 2,000 years is like a blink of an eye compared to an eternity in your resurrected body in full communion with Jesus Christ. That's the picture. Yahweh, man, he's the way out. And he wants you and me to do things his way. He has his way that he's gonna do things, and he wants you and me to start to do his life, the way that he would do it. So Moses' little micro moment, he wants you to do that moment his way, not your way. So when you come to a problem, he wants you to show up to that problem with thinking of it in an advanced way beyond the way Moses did. Because what God knows is that you need him to help you figure out the way you're supposed to live your life every second of the day, every minute of the day, every hour of the day, all day long, for every week, every month, all year, for decades. And so 
the picture here of Moses stepping in, only looking left and looking right, is a picture of the author saying, you better not just look left and right if you want to do things God's way. You need to look left, you need to look right, and then you need to look up. And how do you look up? How do we actually find out what God's way is? We have this scripture that tells us the picture of where things are going. But God, what am I supposed to do in the moment? And the Bible is clear. It's really great. How do I really know what I'm supposed to do? How about this? What is God's way for every minute, for every hour? And how do I get that information? There's two ways. The Bible says that if you lack wisdom, the brother of Jesus says this, if you lack wisdom, and wisdom is what God used to make the world, so it's what makes the world work. So God's way. And if you lack the knowledge, the practical steps of how to do a situation, the Bible says something, and this is so interesting because I think it's literally this difference. What we do is we go look left, look right, and then we just do what we thought. The Bible says if you do this, look left, look right, look up, and then you just stop, and you say, God, I got a way that I think this would work, but I need your help with the right way to do this. Will you tell me your way? This is what it says in James. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, which means the way to live your life, you should ask God. You should ask him. And he gives to generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So do you understand what the Bible is saying? You are gonna come to a Moses moment where you think your way is the way, and your blood might be pumping, or you might be frustrated, but if you have the wherewithal to stop, to just stop, look left, look right, look up and go, God, I wanna do this my way. Will you give me a better way? The Bible says that he will give you a better way. So you can do things the best way. I've had this happen in my life. I mean, I've had stuff this week where I'm going, oh, I wanna say this and do that and say this. I had a situation where I was really mad and I wanted to exercise, you know, maybe some power. I wanted to exercise some influence and I'm mad. I'm, I'm this way, that way. I wanna, I wanna take something on. And because I'm doing this sermon, which is partially why I think God has me in ministry to keep me on the path, I'm doing this sermon, I'm, I'm chasing after God, all I ask is you join me. I'm not saying I know all the answers. I'm doing this sermon, so I'm trying to figure it out, right? So I'm mad, look left, look right. Okay, God, what I wanna do is send this and say this and do this. What should I do? And God says to me, you know what? You should stay calm, be patient, be kind and don't say anything. And I was like, dang it! That's better than what I was gonna do. That might actually work out. And guess what, it did. Because I asked. I mean, this is literally vanilla ice. If you got a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook in my while the DJ revolves. Like, God is like, if you got a problem, you just gotta ask me. Who grew up in church? Jesus on the main line? This is, this is a famous old tune. Jesus on the main line. So it's, the whole picture is that Jesus is on the other end of the phone. Did you catch it? <laughs> Tell him what you want. 
Jesus on the main line. Tell him what you want. And then it picks up. Well, if you're sick and you want to get well, well, tell him what. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. If you're sick, the whole point is, dude, if you just look left and look right, you're going to be on your butt. But if you look left and look right and look up, then you can go the way God wants you to. You can just ask. This is one of the reasons why you're supposed to read the scriptures. Jesus said, I'm going to leave. And I thought John McCambridge said one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard. He said, when he was talking about the Holy Spirit a couple weeks ago, he said, Jesus actually told us that it's better if he leaves because then we get the Spirit. So that means that you can go to God and you're like, God, I don't know what to do. And Jesus said in that same discourse in John 14, somewhere around there, 14, 15, 16, he said, I'll remind you. I'll teach you. So you read the scriptures and maybe you don't know what it means. Honestly, you probably don't. Most, I don't most of the time. But God's doing something and then when I have a question, I ask and he goes, that's what that means. The spirit of God moves and gives me direction. If you lack it, you can, the other thing is you can do, you can ask him and then you can seek him or seek it. So think about it. This starts with the assumption of believing you don't know the way, right? You don't know the way. You know, you know what um, this great female clinical psychologist that I, I follow on Instagram, she said this. I can't remember her name, but she said this. When you don't know something or you're feeling stuck, it's a sign that you're not growing. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that true? You think about the problems that you had and you didn't understand how to do them 10 years ago, and then you remember what you learned that helped you through that. What was the difference? You learned something. You, saw, you figured it out. So whenever you're stuck, you should be thinking, I gotta figure this out. I gotta seek something. I need to go Google this. I need to ask an expert. I need to seek out the answer to the way, not just look left, look right, and do it my way. I wanna seek it out, look for an answer. It says this in Hebrews 11, which is in the context of all these great men and women who walked by faith and did things God's way. How did they do things God's way? It says this, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must trust and believe that he exists and that he rewards those who do what? Earnestly seek him. So here's your job. You come to a moment where you don't know which way to go, you ask God. You come to a moment where you don't know which way to, to, to do it or you think that that way is bad and you think your way is better than that. You seek. You, you go, God, I have a way. Will you show me your way? Will you show me Yahweh? God will reward you. Sometimes now, sometimes later, but 100% of the time he rewards those who seek him and do his way. that you hung out with us today. Uh, we would love to connect with you. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to hear from you. So please text hi to the number on the screen and we can't wait to see you soon.